1: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: And I think that the next few weeks uh, are going to basically determine whether uh, there is enough political capital Within the dwindling political capital of the, of this coalition, to uh, make another push in November.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare podcast, July 26, 2023. The first phase of Israel's judicial overhaul is now law. Huge numbers of people are in the streets. Reservists are resigning. The stock market is tanking, and here in the Virtual Jungle Studio, we had an all-star panel to talk about it. Natan Sachs is the director of the Center for Middle East Policy and a senior fellow in the foreign policy program here at the Brookings Institution. Amichai Cohen teaches international law and national security law at the Ono Academic College in Israel, and Yuval Sheni is the Hirsch Lauterpacht Chair in International Law and former Dean of the Law Faculty of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The latter two are the authors of a string of in-depth articles about the Israeli Judicial Revolution and the protests they have engendered. We talked about what the substance of this new law is. We talked about what's coming next. Is this the end of the reform sequence, or is it just the first slice of salami? And we talked about the incredible reaction we have seen from Israeli civil society and from opposition parties. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 26th. The Judicial Revolution is here. All right, so Natan, uh, get us started with the highest level overview of the current political situation in Israel, what has happened over the
1: last uh, two weeks. Okay, so I'll start. Five years ago, if that's okay, Israel underwent years of major political crises. Every single election, and you and I have spoken about this many times, ended in basically a tie with no one able to form a coalition. And that finally ended late last year. Benjamin Netanyahu won a clear, although small, but clear victory, 64 seats out of 120. After so many elections, the coalition that he formed was also very coherent in the sense that it was all rallied around him with no potential defectors. And everyone who might be a defector saw what happened to the previous defectors. So he has a strong, coherent, and very extreme right-wing coalition. And they have many things on their agenda. A lot has to do with the West Bank. But in their coalition agreements, they clearly stated the number one agenda item led by the Justice Minister Yariv Levine, who is really one of the strongest people in the coalition, is a sweeping, uh, truly breathtaking, uh, they call it reform, but it's really a revolution to the Israeli constitutional makeup, the separation of powers between the judiciary on the one hand and the legislature and the executive on the other. I'll note that Israel as a parliamentary system has really an executive and a legislator that are very closely combined with one another, and the prime minister is by far the strongest member of parliament, unlike, of course, the United States or other presidential systems. And since then, they have been trying to enact that. We've seen At the same time absolutely remarkable Uh, resistance demonstrations by civil society but i use civil society very broadly the economy academia including the two distinguished guests on this podcast people from high tech from everywhere and remarkably also reservists in the military that's been i think a very important point these are not conscripted soldiers these are volunteer reservists who are now have announced now in large numbers that they may not volunteer to serve, and that's especially influential in the Air Force that relies on the reserve. So after pausing with the sweeping reform or revolution in March, the Netanyahu coalition moved forward with one element. It's one small element when compared to the sweeping revolution, but it's a very important one, and that is to severely limit the ability of the court to use reasonableness as an argument for striking down administrative decisions. So this is not the judicial review, but rather administrative review. And I'll leave it to the other guests to explain much better than I what exactly that entails. This has been met again by unprecedented, truly remarkable demonstrations in the country. But Netanyahu squeezed between his coalition partners, including his own justice minister from his own party, who simply would not budge on the one hand, and the demonstrators and the military, and to a certain degree, the minister of defense responding to the military. On the other, he chose in this case, at least, to side with the extremists. He has passed this. And for many Israelis yesterday, as quite a few said, was perhaps the darkest moment domestically since the state was founded in
0: 1948. All right. So Yuval, you guys wrote a quite comprehensive account of the judicial reform package more generally, uh, one element of which was this reasonableness bill. More recently, you wrote a piece about the breaking out of this component of it. Walk us through what reasonableness review in Israel is, which is, of course, uh, quite uh, foreign to American uh, administrative law and what this bill now, law does.
2: So Israel follows a common law system. And uh, in terms of administrative law, it doesn't have, uh, as, as you know, um, a comprehensive constitution. It has a number of basic laws that uh, delineate some of the powers of government. Uh, but administrative law, uh, like in the UK, uh, administrative law is is quite an important uh, part of our checks and balances. And like in English law, it has been largely developed by the judiciary. It's judge-made law. And within this framework of administrative law, uh, one of the most central doctrines that has been invoked by the court since the founding of the state has been the reasonableness doctrine that essentially is premised on the, on, on, on the, on the notion that the exercise of public authority is an act act which must be um, undertaken as a a form of trusteeship, namely that the the holder of executive authority is operating as a trustee on behalf of the general public. And therefore, um, public authority has to be exercised reasonably, namely that it has to be um, applied in some, with some correlation or with some uh, conformity with the object and purpose of the enabling legislation. Now, initially, the court was um, applying with regard to, 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 under this doctrine, a rather restrictive test, which, which essentially asked, um, asked the question, is, is this a decision that no reasonable decision maker uh, could have taken? Uh, And this is uh, somewhat uh, similar to arbitrary and and capricious, uh, which is a standard that is also uh, known uh, in the U.S. Uh, Since the 1980s, the court has developed uh, somewhat of a more uh, intrusive standard of review. You could perhaps say a hard look review, uh, which uh, you could say correlates to the significant increase of the administrative state in the 1970s. And under that um, more robust test, uh, the court is is uh, expecting the, the the holder of public authority uh, not only to justify the, the overall the the outcome or uh, or to, uh, to, to to demonstrate that the process is not arbitrary, but also to demonstrate that the the the, the act that was taken uh, balances in a in a reasonable or doesn't balance in an unreasonable manner between competing considerations that uh, that the uh, decision maker has weighed. And this has been, uh, since the 1980s, somewhat of a a controversial move within the Israeli uh, legal system. Some conservative judges and some conservative academics uh, have criticized the more intrusive uh, direction of the doctrine. However, most of the judges and most of academics in Israel thought that uh, this move uh, is justified by virtue of the increase in in administrative power and the lack of other uh, effective checks and balances uh, within the Israeli system. Maybe uh, Amichai wants to add something, but maybe uh, just to note, at the end of the day, I should emphasize that the number of decisions that the court actually struck down on the basis of either the conservative or the more uh, aggressive application of the reasonable doctrine remains rather modest. We are talking about something like 10% of cases in which the, 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 the claim of unreasonableness was invoked. By petitioners, in about 10% of the cases, the court accepted these petitions and intervened with an administrative decision.
0: So Amichai, if I put out that there were 250,000 people in the streets of Washington over a point of administrative law, everybody would respond by laughing. Why is the standard of review on administrative actions, a point that most Israelis can't possibly understand, um, not being legally trained. How is this a matter that turns hundreds of thousands of people in out in the street, tanks the stock market, and causes reservists not to show up to fly airplanes?
3: So uh, there are three reasons, I think, uh that cause people to go to the streets. The first is that, indeed, I think the public has gained some knowledge, and it's it's very surprising, I agree, but it did happen. The public has gained some knowledge regarding the workings, the inner workings of the government, and in addition to what uh, Yuval has said before, I want to emphasize that... Uh, reasonableness has mostly served not so much as a ground in petitions in, in the court, but as a basis for the workings of the legal advisors within the government. This was their, the main ability to preserve the resources of the state for the benefit of the um, general interest and not to uh, uh, you know, give it to specific uh, interest groups and pressure groups within politics. so And people understand it, in, even intuitively, that without the limitations emanating for reasonableness, there is such um, a worry, and uh, that, that the resources of the states and the decision-making uh, will go in, uh, in favor of very specific identified groups. And you have to understand that context is the context of this specific government in which ministers, uh, specific ministers, explain publicly that they feel that the government should work in the favor of specific interests. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that people, I think, uh, got it from January 4th. You're asking whether if Minister of Justice Yariv Levin, when he started in January 4th, would have presented only the question of reasonableness as the only change, whether people would have gone to the streets, the answer is probably no. But people now see the picture. And once again, Yariv Levin and others in the government have openly said this is just the first step. And because it's a first step, people understand that something is going on here that will not stop here. And the question is, you know, whether you're giving up on on the first uh, steps, or what will happen in the future. And the third point, I think, is that reasonableness or the administrative ground by itself may not be the most important constitutional issue. But there is, and once again, looking at the context, I think uh, the protesters, people who are against the plan. Uh, generally, feel that what is going on here is a kind of a threat towards the judicial system and the legal advisors. It's like, we've changed something that is relatively small. And if you play along with us and limit your intervention in the policies of the government, then uh, we won't interfere with the judicial system anymore. However... If, you'll, uh, if, if the court will develop other grounds for interventions, then the government says, then we have other suggestions. You know, we'll fire the legal advisors. We'll change the way the um, court is, is operating. And the point is that we already know after six months where this government is headed and what does it want to do with the powers it has. And the, the, what does it what it wants to do is not only regarding uh, uh, the judicial overhaul. It wants to change many many facets of the way the Israeli state has operated in uh, in the recent decades. I would say regarding the territories, regarding religion and state relations, regarding um, many issues. Uh, of independence of various actors within the, uh, the state. So all this together, I think, puts people um, uh, in the streets. So in other words, the,
0: the issue is not really about reasonableness as a standard of review per se. That's a stalking horse for a much larger, both judicial and non-judicial agenda.
2: Yeah, it's fair to say that this is not only about reasonableness, but if we're talking about democracies dying uh, as a result of death through a thousand cuts, people understand that this is, well, this this is several cuts.
0: Okay, so Natan, talk to me about the politics of this. Because again, in, in the United States, this political environment would be a little bit hard to understand. You have here an unpopular piece of legislation that is tanking the popularity and approval of the government, and yet the government and the prime minister, whose approval is sinking with it, responds by getting ever more committed to it and letting the people who are dragging him down from his victory ever more leeway. Why does this happen? Why does the government not simply back down and pursue, you know, something popular like peace with Saudi Arabia?
1: It's a great question. And I'll give you several answers, which is to say I'm not completely sure what the weight of each one of them is. The legislation is unpopular, especially as a whole package. It's unpopular also, as Ami said, well, people identify the salami tactic of they tried to pass everything in the beginning and everything was huge. Now they're trying to pass Uh, Small slivers, always with the promise that perhaps this is just it. And what's the big deal? It's one small change that in a vacuum would have been okay. So I think part of the political calculation for Netanyahu, and he obviously miscalculated terribly in the past seven months, has been that with small changes, there will be some resistance, certainly, but it would pass. And a change in the reasonableness um, doctrine, you know, it's not a big deal. As you said, most people could not spell it out properly, probably it will simply pass. Once the resistance grew to it, however, we also saw something that is familiar from the United States, that's extreme polarization. Um, all three of us here on the call are, um, I think it's fair to say, very much against the Netanyahu move. But it's worth remember remembering that even if they are now a min- minority, it is a very large minority that is extremely supportive of Netanyahu, and many of them want this to pass. Some of them for substantive reasons. There are many people who want judicial reform, but they're also simply a feeling of tribes, of sides. It's become so polarized now that for many in the the camp that supports Netanyahu, the feeling of the opposition stopping legislation like this uh, seems more than unfair, but a disenfranchisement. One of the main slogans that you can hear in pro-Netanyahu demonstrations is second-class citizens, to say, we are the majority, we won, and yet our vote counts less. They believe that extra electoral means are being used by the opposition, mass demonstrations that block the main arteries of transportation in Israel, the strikes and threats of strikes, and most notably truly a remarkable move in Israel, the threat not to volunteer for military service, something that really is a doomsday weapon and has been used because people feel it is a democratic doomsday. And so this sense that it's a second-class citizen, these are the second-class citizens, and they demand that their victory mean something is a very powerful political tool. So while Netanyahu is risking a lot politically by moving with this, and the current polls suggest he would lose, it's the first time the polls give him a clear loss in years, he would also suffer terribly with his base if he simply backed down. And so I think what he thinks is that this move on reasonableness was at least the one element that he would give to his far right. There's probably some more elements, especially on judicial appointments that he tried to pass and may try again. But that beyond that, he would stop on the most controversial elements, and he's even said publicly that he would not pass an override clause that would have allowed the parliament, the Knesset, to simply override decisions by the Supreme Court, the most ostentatious and controversial element of the whole package, although really only one of them. And so, in short, we have extreme polarization. We have Netanyahu caught between these different pressures. Netanyahu is known in Israel as the sum of all pressures applied to him, and he has decided to try and triangulate between them. I'll add one more element, which is a bit hard to estimate how important it is, but of course Netanyahu is on trial for severe crimes, three different cases, and he has a major motivation to try and limit the power of the judiciary but also the legal advisors and allow him to do more, perhaps also get him out of his own legal trouble. For that, he needs these kinds of changes. And certainly, it was probably part of the motivation to begin with. What element, how much of that fed into his calculation, of course, I don't know.
0: Can I advance one additional uh, sort of synthetic uh, hypothesis, which just has to do with the structure of a Knesset coalition, which is that you can put as many people in the street as you want and it doesn't bring down the government. But if you do not satisfy uh, Justice Minister Levine and four other people, the government falls. And so you can stomach as the prime minister a great deal of even civil unrest and compared to uh, dissatisfying the not just the base voters, but the three to five people uh, in your Knesset coalition without whom you don't have a government.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right, but with a few conditions. One is that elections are far enough away, and right now we are more than three years away from Elections, So there is that time. That's one. Second is that there aren't too many people in your coalition, five in particular, who would be tempted to go to elections. So for example, you could imagine a centrist faction in a different coalition seeing an electoral opportunity. We will be the ones to save consensus in Israel. But that is not possible today, given that this is, these have been so many consecutive elections and all the centrist elements or would-be centrist elements have already left the Netanyahu camp. They are now in the opposition. There are many Likudniks, in particular the person leading the negotiations for the opposition is in fact the former Justice Minister from the Likud, Gidon sal And so you have a situation where members of the coalition do not have this centrist incentive. And they also see the polls, which means that going to elections is all the more dangerous for them. They do not have incentive to bring down the coalition, and most of them probably would not do so. But Netanyahu fears that some of them, in particular the most ideological ones on this issue, this issue, Yariv Levin and also Itamar Ben-Gvil, uh, from the very, very, very far right, Uh, that they might, in fact, uh, have a Samson kind of option and bring down this coalition, although it would be terrible politically for them as well. All this puts him in this kind of bind. He's really sustaining enormous pressure, including from the United States, uh, and still going forward with this. But let me add one last element, if I may. There is also a substantive argument that many in his camp believe, and I think some of them believe it genuinely, which is to say that especially the threat from reservists not to show up is something that they cannot cave into. In their view, at least, this is not quite a putsch, because obviously it's not the, the regular military doing anything, disobeying in any way, but it is people using this doomsday weapon that must not be used, and that if Netanyahu were to cave into that, there would be no limit to what reservists in, especially elite units, could demand. And therefore, I think he believes substance is on his side in this regard, and he will not countenance that kind of pressure on him.
0: All right, so you have all three alluded to this as the first step. Natan, you've suggested that the crown jewel of the Judicial Revolution project, the the override clause, is sort of off the table. But Yuval, what do you think from Netanyahu's point of view the next step is? Is the reasonableness kind of the the From his point of view, the end state, that it's enough to satisfy the Yair Levins and the Ben Gvirs, but he doesn't really have to do more? Or is this a, as one of you said earlier, a salami slice situation where uh, having gotten the first step, now you move on to the next step? And if the latter, what is the next step?
2: Well, I mean, uh, our guess is as good as yours, actually. And um, just uh, responding very quickly to Nathan's very, very good analysis, I will just say that it's true that Netanyahu is a hostage to his coalition. But as uh, it's Nathan it's not said, I mean, it's not like uh, Yariv Levin or Itamar Ben-Gvir or the others have many other options. So, so Netanyahu, if, if he really wanted to, for instance, to water down the legislation, this is something that he could have done. He probably didn't want to do that, and that, and he may have had his own reasons for that. Uh, what's up next? So I, I would differ that the override clause is the is the is the crown jewel. Not at all. It's judicial, It's the composition of the Supreme Court. This is really what is the the, pro- the project that uh, Yariv Levin and Rotman and the others are invested is in really taking over the Supreme Court, politicizing the Supreme Court, uh, getting uh, ex-ultra-conservative uh, or ultra-right-wing uh, lawyers into the Supreme Court. And they've already announced that, uh, that this would be the next step. Uh, Netanyahu uh, has said he will try to do it by forming a consensus, and that he has indicated that he is going by, uh, he is a- a- allotting uh, four months until November for such consensus to emerge, uh, which in practical terms is really only one month because the Knesset is going uh, next week on a three month break. So uh, this is going to be the next slice of the salami. They, are now not, they, they have a concrete proposal now that looks a little bit different from the proposal that was put forward in January. It's not a, a coalition takeover of the Supreme Court. It's a, it's a political takeover of the Supreme Court, which would allegedly be uh, divided equally between coalition and opposition. And how, does, how would it work in, in practice? So there will be a committee. We have a selection committee. This is how it actually currently operates. In our system, uh, it is uh, currently there is a a majority of professionals, judges and lawyers uh, are five out of nine of that of that uh, committee. Uh, And we have four politicians, three from the coalition and one from the opposition. And the idea would be to uh to to uh, create a, a commission probably of ten members, five nominated by the coalition, five nominated by the opposition, and they will uh, basically allocate between them the loot and uh, appoint justices to the Supreme Court. It's a different program from what was initially proposed, but it still is a program which would uh, radically transform. The Supreme Court from a House of Judges uh, where you have uh, broad consensus, professional and political consensus on the candidates to uh, candidates who will be ultra partisan. And I think this is something that in the U.S. you have a lot of experience that you could share with us. I would just say that reasonableness and, uh, is in a way a bellwether. So I think uh, Nathan was right that uh, Netanyahu um, assessed that maybe he can get away with it. And I think that the next few weeks uh, are going to basically determine whether uh, there is enough political capital within the dwindling political capital of of this coalition to uh, make another push in November.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so Amichai, I am mindful of the fact that in Israel, everything faces judicial review. This is the, uh, of course, the country that gave rise to the the phrase everything is justiciable. Uh, So presumably a law that restricts judges' ability to assess administrative action for reasonableness is itself subject to some form of judicial challenge. What do we expect those judicial challenges to look like? And is it possible that the Supreme Court itself will be one of the mechanisms by which uh, this law uh, runs into trouble?
3: So uh, petitions against what happened uh, yesterday were already submitted this morning to the Supreme Court. Um, I'll explain in a, a concise way the uh, framework here. So the what passed yesterday is a change to a uh, basic law. so basic law, uh, the justice system where it says that uh, petitions, Or the court has no authority to strike down decisions of the executive based on reasonableness.
0: And just to be clear for listeners who do not know the terminology, basic law in Israel is uh, laws related to the formulation of the government, the constitutional system itself, and have a kind of quasi-constitutional status.
3: Right. So the doctrine is that basic laws are supreme to regular laws and the court can strike down a law that contradicts the basic law. However, and once again, what was passed yesterday is an amendment to a basic law. Once again, saying that elected officials, decisions of elected officials based on reasonableness uh, cannot be uh, overruled by the court. So what is the possibility of the court to uh, strike down amendments to basic laws, not to regular laws? This is an issue in which we have very little jurisprudence on. There are mainly two ways of thinking about it. One is uh, something that was said in one case, but the court has never actually developed it, is that if an amendment to a basic law would be passed that would completely undermine the identity of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, then the court might overrule it because there is a basic structure of Israel, which is supreme to to even to to the basic laws. Uh, This is just, you know, the court has said it in an obiter dicta, or in, and, and has never used it, and it was not developed, it's out there. And it's not clear, at least to me, that, that the reasonableness issue is appropriate for such a decision. I'll, I'll get back to it in a second. The second channel through which the court has, uh, the jurisprudence of the court, has dealt with issues of amendments to basic law is the abuse of the constitutional process doctrine. And this is a little more developed. Once again, the court has never really uh, struck down any amendment to a basic law based on it, but the court did develop this jurisprudence. And in certain cases, the the point is, of course, that in Israel passing a basic law is basically uh, the same procedure as passing a regular law, you just need a title. So a 64-member majority of the Knesset was able to amend the basic law uh, yesterday. So there is this jurisprudence, this doctrine of abuse of constitutional uh, process, and petitions that were submitted did try to use these two channels. Some of the petitions said, as, as we have said earlier, that actually saying that the court has no authority to strike down decisions of the executive based on reasonableness is an undermining of the entire democratic process. It's a first step toward changing the nature of, of, uh, of Israel. You know, democracies, as Yuval said earlier, uh, die through a thousand cuts, so you can't really pinpoint when is the identity of Israel as a democratic state Actually, undermined. It's never going. You're, you're never going to have a clear uh, saying. You know, we are not a democracy anymore. It's always a process. So this is one channel through which the uh, petitions have have gone. And the second channel is I- indeed the um, passing of this specific amendment was done in a very peculiar manner. It wasn't a government bill. It wasn't a private members' bill. It was. The committee, actually the chair of the committee used a very, very peculiar, very rarely used process in order to pass it through. And he jumped several procedures uh, within the Knesset by doing this procedure. So, and the way he conducted the discussions, if you followed it, it was really um, very aggressive, the way that the law was promoted and, and moved. Uh, through the committee in the Knesset, basically all, you know, academics and professionals appearing before the committee said that this is a very problematic amendment and it would undermine a lot of important interests, etc. And the committee almost completely ignored, the coalition ignored all the uh, experts that uh, testified before it and just went on and passed it. And for a constitutional process, this seems a very problematic process. I must say, here, here there are differing, differing views. So some academics have voiced opinions yesterday and today that the court would use this as an opportunity to voice its opposition, anxiety, apprehension, with regards to the entire judicial overhaul program that is being promoted, and would say that uh, this, this is a, a, the first step and, and th- th- uh, would, would, if not completely uh, strike down this amendment, at least uh, uh, interpret it and use various mechanisms to limit its effect. And others, and I must say uh, I'm at that camp. I'm, I'm not sure that, as I said, we have no precedents, good precedents, and ve- it's very undeveloped jurisprudence regarding the way that the court can intervene in uh, the amendment to basic laws. So the unconstitutional constitutional amendment jurisprudence, the uh, abuse of constitutional process, all these are, are very, very shaky grounds. And I'm not sure that this change, which is basically uh, in administrative law, is the correct vehicle for the court to develop it. Perhaps the court will look to the next step of the way that, the, that justices are are um, are nominated as a better place to to intervene.
0: All right. So, Natan, you know, it's very easy on the day the law passes to have a huge demonstration. And these demonstrations since January 4th have been uh, just amazing for their staying power. But how does the civil society opposition maintain any momentum over the next four months when nothing's happening. So you have this uh, giant change that people think is, you know, the darkest day in domestic Israeli history. Then the next morning, the sun rises in the East and sets in the West. And most of the country uh, operates just as it always has. What's What's the mechanism by which people prevent these protests from just petering out at this point?
1: Well, it's a great question, and I'll start with a word of caution. I'm sitting in Washington, so you know what exactly is the mood right now on Kaplan Street in, in Tel Aviv? I'm not the right person to answer. But the staying power that we've seen now for, I think, 29 weeks is extraordinary, and the breadth and scope of the solidarity that we've seen not just from young pot-smoking lefties or something like that. That is simply not what's happening on the streets. You see why, you know, very broad swaths of Israeli society. It's not just leftists by any means. It's people from, as I said, you know, business and academia, business and the labor union together striking uh, a few months ago, truly extraordinary scenes. My 82-year-old mother is there with a flag and 18-year-old kids, 17-year-old kids, one of them arrested yesterday in a famous photo. So I really would not count out this movement and I would not count out the will and the determination of a very, very strong and large element of society. I don't know if the demonstrations will necessarily persist at the same scale every week. They don't have to. But I do think that in November all these people will remember this very, very well. And they are in this, I think, for the long haul. And so the question is partly, what does the coalition do? They have the cards. If they try to pass anything more, I would strongly suspect you have ignited this fire, it's not going out anytime soon. And it very much depends what Netanyahu does next. I'll add another point, which is, and Yuval mentioned this before, these protests and this sense of doom, but also of motivation, is not only because of the legal aspects. It's not simply about the changing of the structure between the Supreme Court and the executive or the legislature. It's about the whole package of this coalition with such an extreme right wing uh, agenda and membership. It's also the first coalition with a majority of religious parties in Israel's history. And it is something that motivates many people in the opposition for many different reasons. Good reasons and, uh, by the way, bad reasons too. And one very clear example just yesterday, I believe, uh, early this morning DC time, um, one of the ultra-Orthodox parties suggested a bill that would define the study of Torah, the religious studies, as a meaningful service to the state, which would qualify it to be equivalent to military service. And for the ultra-Orthodox parties, a key motivation in this whole judicial overhaul is to make sure that their young men do not serve in the military and can stay in the religious schools, the yeshivot, and therefore within the community, uh, the tight community and the political structure of their parties. This is the kind of thing that motivates secular and many modern Orthodox Israelis like nothing else. These are communities, the the general communities, that suffer bereavement, that serve in the military and, and have lost friends almost without exception. And when they see a large portion of the Jewish society in Israel not serving purely for political power, really there are very few things that motivate as much as that. Not everyone, of course, but but large swaths of this community. And there are many Likud supporters who also are angry at this. That's the kind of thing that would motivate as well. And we've reached this stage, I think, where it's, it's really not just about the judicial reform anymore. Uh, it's also a challenge for the de- demonstrators, of course, but for many of them... This is against this coalition. It's a challenge because they are trying also to bring in people who voted for this coalition and are opposed to at least these extreme measures or at least the way it's done. And so there's a tension there. How how radical do you go? But my guess is that you're going to see in all of the above approach, you're going to see demonstrators for very different motivations. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And the damage is significant. Just today as we're recording, uh, we see some of the credit uh, rating agencies, Moody's in particular, issue a warning. Uh, we've seen some of the major investment banks in the world uh, issue warnings. That too may or may not last, but this is big. It's big not only on the coalition side, but also very much on the opposition side.
3: So I, I want to connect the two threads that Nathan w- was talking about. So when you asked the question regarding what will keep the protests uh, uh, alive, you assumed, and it's quite rational on your side, that it's, uh, there are stages here. And once the coalition has passed the reasonableness, it will now, you know, there'll be some uh, static uh, stage in which it will wait and see what happens and, and, and then decide whether to move to the next stage. But within, and, and this might be a good analysis of where Netanyahu would have wanted the coalition to go. But the current coalition does not operate this way. Within the coalition, there are forces who see the current order, not only the legal order, but the general liberal order of the Israeli society as problematic and want to undermine it. So even if Netanyahu would not promote a single issue on the judicial overhaul project in the foreseeable future... There are people within his government who are operating to undermine other things. So, for example, the Minister of National Security, Ben Gvir, who is constantly trying to change the way that the police operates in Israel. And the Minister of Finance, who is also a minister within the Ministry of Defense, Smutrich, who is constantly... Trying to change the way Israel controls the territory. so the the protesters can actually, without uh, prophesizing too much, can actually count on the government itself to provide reasons for the uh, protesters to continue protesting. And Nathan has has said, you know, this is was his example, you know, the first thing that was done. After passing the um, the the amendment regarding reasonableness, was by the ultra orthodox uh, parties submitting the bill, which everyone could have seen. It just you know very minimal level of common sense is required to understand that this would erupt, you know, and, and, and cause immense opposition. Uh, This bill of exemption, which uh, aims to exempt ultra-Orthodox from um, military service. So I I think the coalition will keep the protesters there.
0: Interesting. So Natan rightly points out that he doesn't have his finger on the pulse because he's in Washington. Uh, Amichai, you've been in Israel the whole time. Uh, But Yuval, you have a really interesting perspective, which is that you've uh, been outside the country uh, for been been teaching in London, but returned to sort of get a sense of things from 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 home. So I'm very curious how you describe the mood and particularly uh, describe the mood as somebody, you know, relative to when you were last living there.
2: Yeah, well, I've been away for several, um, from, from the beginning of actually, from last summer for a year, uh, I've been uh, visiting a few times, but uh, it, it is quite dramatic and quite transformative, I mean, the change that, uh, that, that one sees uh, in terms of the level of engagement, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, friends, family who have never been in, in demonstrations, are now uh, all in, as you can say. You can say they're demonstrating on a regular basis. They're uh, camping out in Jerusalem. So the level of engagement in very wide circles uh, that were not politically active or, or interested has, has significantly changed. And, and like Amichai said before, also the level of engagement with very specific legal issues. Young people, old people. Uh, are, are extremely alert and are uh, have educated themselves in an incredible manner uh, about uh, constitutional law and about uh, democratic principles. And, and it seems like that in that regard, it's, it's a very a different country. At the same time, people are extremely stressed. This is clearly, um, I mean, Israel is not a relaxed place to begin with. Uh, but the level of stress and anxiety and people reporting um, about not sleeping, you know, properly for, for months now, uh, th- this is also quite, quite apparent, that the level of stress and anxiety is, is very, very high. Uh, so, so you do feel this the, the tension in the air in ways that w- were not felt before.
0: So I would be remiss, Natan, if I didn't, ask you to address uh, a question that may sound like it comes from Mars for Yuval and and Amichai, but is something you and I get asked all the time, which is, hey, you guys are talking about Israel as though its laws and democratic structures actually matter uh, from the point of view of Many Palestinians and Israeli uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. The uh, this is all a mirage anyway, and there's no difference between the Israeli right and the Israeli left, and therefore there's no real difference between the protesters and the government. Address that point for for uh, listeners who were skeptical of the entire premise of this conversation, which is that there's a uh, there's a country. Here, whose laws and politics actually matter, and are, and that a democratic erosion can take place in, uh, that is meaningful in a in a significant sense.
1: Yeah, I do get that question a lot, and I think it's, it has two main elements. One is that uh, Arab citizens of Israel are uh, anyway second-class citizens in many ways, and therefore what does it matter if it's Benny Gantz, Prime Minister, or Benjamin Netanyahu, and what does it matter if the Supreme Court can uh, can check their power? And secondly, of course, that if Israel and the West Bank, and some would say even the Gaza Strip, are actually one state, a one-state reality, then about half the population can vote. So what democracy are you talking about? It's all a sham. I think, you know, I, b- by nature, I think, degrees matter enormously. There's no question that Palestinians in the West Bank are affected enormously by Israeli policy. And I think in that regard, too, it's extremely important, actually, what happens in Israel. I'm absolutely not of the school that thinks, uh, therefore, to hell with the whole question of what happens in Israel. Quite the contrary. I think the best evidence of that is that the biggest supporters of this uh, move, the ones who are pushing most for this kind of reform, are the ideological settlers. Smotrich, for example, and Simcha Otman, who is the chairman of the Committee, the Parliamentary Committee on Constitutional and Legal Affairs, is of Smotrich's party. They are both settlers, ideological settlers. There is a reason they both uh, support that so much. Smotrich is concerned first and foremost with settlement in the West Bank, uh, with he'd be quite happy if the Palestinian Authority collapsed and much else happened. Uh, For those who would like a Leninist approach and to see everything come down in flames, maybe that would be a good thing. Those who think that only a massive revolution in the whole land would help, I'm not of that school. I think a revolution would be terrible first for the weakest. But if you look at who supports this, I think it's very clear also who must oppose it. And you can look at who opposes opposes it as well. The parties that represent Arab citizens of Israel or Palestinian citizens of Israel, as some of them define themselves, are clearly opposed to this. They all are part of the opposition in this regard. They do not always find themselves in the demonstrations, which, have, as I said, have had a real dilemma and made some choices uh, on whether to fight for all different causes or, or focus very narrowly on the judicial aspect. But they are very clearly opposed to it. So those who think they know better than, than them from abroad as we say in Hebrew, um, should enjoy that, but uh, I strongly disagree. I think this is extremely important precisely for the weakest elements of society. That is not to say that the Supreme Court has defended Palestinian rights well in the past five decades or six decades. That is not the case. But without it, things could be far, far worse. And I know this because Smotrich is so eager to pass this. That's, that's the first evidence of it. The second point I would make is that There are huge differences between these different camps in Israel. And it's not only about the Palestinian issue. It's about a wide variety of of issues. And it's also about the possibility for change in the future. You may dislike Israeli policy. I do dislike Israeli policy right now, certainly regarding the Palestinians. But I think the possibility for change requires a vibrant democratic process and a vibrant democratic space where different approaches can be presented. These approaches are not as different as many or some abroad would want but they nonetheless are very meaningful differences to my mind, and more importantly, they could be meaningful in the future. But to, to be meaningful, to have that debate, you must have a polity that has serious separation of powers that can have a vibrant democracy. And this crisis uh, is mostly very negative, I should, cl- I should state very clearly, but from any, any crisis, there also sometimes are opportunities, and you may see change in all sorts of aspects of Israeli life. I don't think the first item will be on Israeli-Arab or Jewish-Arab uh, or, Jewish or Israeli-Palestinian relations, but that too can come down the road. There are a few other elements on the Palestinian side that would have to change first, I think, too. Uh, but I, do, I would not rule it out. I think people make a bad mistake in thinking uh, the current trajectory is all there is. Things can change, and it's essential, I think, that this judicial revolution be stopped so that they could change in the future.
0: So I want to close by asking each of you, in order, uh, Amichai, Yuval, and Natan, to just give us a sense of what you're looking for, what signs you're you're looking for in the coming weeks as this progresses. Amichai?
3: What we've talked about here, we've mentioned several times, Nathan and Yuval and myself, that the different thing that happened now perhaps even unique on a universal level is that the people in Israel and not only the people themselves but the you know doctors and people in economics and people, reservists etc have all come out and said and i think that first of all it's it's i think it's an optimistic sign of involvement of the public in the political affairs. And if this will continue, and I think there is a good chance that it will continue, at the end of the day, uh, the possibility of the government to continue with the changes, I think, is very limited because the pressure will be too big on, on on the government. But... As you asked, you know, in the next few weeks, we'll see where, indeed whether the protests continue and whether the pressure, international economic security pressure, will continue. Yuval,
2: maybe one, one area to look uh, to look for, uh, in addition to strictly speaking the uh, legis- the progress of uh, of the legislation, which is part of the judicial overhaul, uh, there are also some uh, side battles taking on that are not unrelated to this issue. Uh, And uh, there has been actually a major development this afternoon in Israel in one of the cases pending in court uh, asking to essentially challenging uh, another base, another amendment to another basic law uh, that made it much more harder to declare the prime minister as incompetent. Uh, This has been a discourse that we have seen in the last several years since the uh, since Netanyahu's criminal trial began Uh, and um, uh, since uh, there has been uh, ever since there have been concerns and have been uh, allegations that Netanyahu is acting in conflict of interests. Uh, and this actually uh, exacerbated in recent months, given his own involvement in legislation that might affect his criminal trial. So there is a side battle uh, taking on, uh, going on before the Supreme Court regarding the constitutionality of this uh, amendment to the basic law on the incompetence question. And this afternoon, the attorney general came out with a legal opinion calling for the court to strike down this basic law because uh, she she relied on the abuse of constitutional process doctrine, which Amichai alluded to, that the law was tailored specifically to allow Netanyahu to act in in conflict of interest, basically to violate uh, his conflict of interest agreement that allowed him to uh, actually serve as prime minister to begin with. So this is one legal scaffold that takes place. The other one is a petition filed yesterday, Uh, by uh, Yair Lapid, the head of the opposition, calling uh, on the justice minister to convene the judicial uh, uh, selection committee, which is something that he has so far refused to do. And the the third front uh, is the increasing calls by uh, cabinet ministers to fire the attorney general because she essentially is siding with petitioners uh, in cases against the government uh, and all of these issues are very much related to the overarching theme of to what extent is this government, is this coalition, is willing to uh, respect uh, any limits on its power and to accept the the, the, uh, the control by the Supreme Court over its activities? And these things could uh, could basically exacerbate each and one of these developments could significantly exacerbate the conflict that takes place over the the judicial overhaul project.
1: Natan, bring us home. What are you looking for? I'm looking for two things. I think Yuval mentioned earlier the centrality of the question of judicial appointments. A major reason that Yariv Levin, the Minister of Justice, wanted to pass this latest, latest legislation about reasonableness was that so that the court will not be able to force him to convene the Judicial Appointments Committee as it was constituted before. And so that is going to be a very central issue, and that's probably where Levine and others are going to push most forcefully uh, to continue, and there'll be a question of whether Netanyahu goes along with it or not. And finally, I'll bring in foreign policy and, and Washington, but also Riyadh, you know, in the backdrop of this, as surprising as it is, there is a real effort, a genuine effort to explore at least the possibility of Israeli-Saudi normalization. And this is unrelated directly, but it is, of course, very important for Netanyahu. It would be a huge win for him. And it's the kind of legacy-creating event that for him could trump much else. I could imagine a scenario where he tried to pivot from these disastrous seven months towards uh, a major legacy uh, creating uh, moves such as normalization with Saudi Arabia, or it's even actually peace with Saudi Arabia. And whether that happens or not, it seems like a really a long shot. Many people are very skeptical. I was skeptical, but I can say that in Washington, it's being explored very seriously, and I think in Israel and in Riyadh as well. And if that continued, you could see quite a pivot of the whole narrative in particular because I think Netanyahu himself would have an interest in maybe other elements in the Israeli political system would see a moment where they have to step up and, and really pivot away from, from this disastrous first period of the Netanyahu government. To be clear, I think it's a long shot. There are many, many reasons why it would not happen, but I don't think it's impossible, and I used to think it was. And so that is certainly something I'll be keeping an eye on.
0: The pivot to Saudi Arabia... We are going to leave it there. Natan Sachs, Yuval Shani, Amichai Cohen, thank you all for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to support the Lawfare podcast so we can keep bringing you podcasts like this. And I promise you, you have not heard a podcast quite like this one on the current goings-on in Israel, one that mixes the politics with the law, with the legislation, with the activities of the Supreme Court. You know this is where you go to get this sort of thing. So go to lawfaremedia.org, slash about, slash support, to become a material supporter of Lawfare. You know it's the right thing to do. You know you want to do it, and so you should do it. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.